Welcome and thanks for joining us today on the Abundance Podcast. We'll go ahead and get started in prayer. Good morning, Holy Spirit. I thank you for your presence. God, I thank you for your love that you extend towards all of us, that you've given through your son, Jesus. And I just thank you that you'll go beyond my words and you'll minister to each person right where they're at. Thank you for all you've done for us and all that you're doing and that you're with us no matter what season we're in. So we just give this to you in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, this is part five of the series entitled David's Journey. And this episode is called It's Game Time, David and Goliath. Today, we're going to look at the event most commonly thought of when you hear the names David and Goliath, which of course is the fight between the two of them. Now, just as a reminder, the reason we're reading about the life of David, as well as the others included in his journey, is to learn from their successes and to learn from their mistakes. Romans 15.4 says, For whatever things were written before were written for our learning, that we through the patience and comfort of the scriptures might have hope. So not only do we have the potential to receive hope from reading the Bible, and one reason that is is because we start to realize, man, if God was faithful for them, he'll be faithful for me now too. And second, we just learn that we don't have to make the same mistakes as them because we can learn from what they've done. So today, we're picking right back up in the story where King Saul had just tried to give David his armor to fight Goliath. And we saw that David attempted to walk in it and instantly realized, you know, this isn't going to work. And that leads us up to verse 40. So we are in 1 Samuel chapter 17, verse 40. And that reads, Then he took his staff in his hand and chose for himself five smooth stones from the brook and put them in a shepherd's bag and a pouch which he had. And his sling was in his hand and he drew near to the Philistine. So this verse says that David was the one that drew near to the Philistine. So David made the first move. Okay, he wasn't fearful. He wasn't on the fence with whether he should or shouldn't follow through with what he knew God was calling him to do. He got the weapons he needed, which, you know, for him, using a sling was five smooth stones. And he just went right out there and began walking towards Goliath. Verse 41 through 43. So the Philistine came and began drawing near to David, and the man who bore the shield went before him. And when the Philistine looked about and saw David, he disdained him, for he was only a youth, ruddy and good-looking. So the Philistine said to David, Am I a dog that you come to me with sticks? And the Philistine cursed David by his gods. So here we see that Goliath now begins moving towards David. And when he gets close enough... He recognizes that David is a good-looking, you know, youth. I mean, you just think about it. Goliath, you know, nearly 10 foot tall. So, I mean, everybody from a distance looks small to him. So it wasn't until he got up closer that he could tell that David was just a youth. And what did Goliath do? He just went right back to doing what he'd been doing for the last 40 days, which was taunting and throwing insults at David. And he said, am I a dog that you come to me with sticks? So... What we see here is that Goliath was focused on David's appearance and he tried making fun of David's stick. But the problem was he failed to recognize the sling that would eventually kill him. Now, obviously, David knew he was going to use the sling. We know he wasn't thinking that he was going to defeat Goliath with the stick because, you know, it's not like he sharpened the edge of the stick. No, he went and got five smooth stones. But like we've talked about in previous episodes, 
Sometimes others don't see in us what God sees. But here Goliath was making fun of what David was bringing, but he didn't see what David would actually kill him with. And then we see that Goliath went on to mock David's God. And in this verse, it says his gods. But we know David didn't serve you know, God's plural. He served the one and only true God, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Verse 44 through 45. And the Philistines said to David, Come to me, and I will give your flesh to the birds of the air and the beasts of the field. And David said to the Philistine, You come to me with a sword and with a spear and with a javelin, but I come to you in the name of the Lord of hosts, the God of the armies of Israel, whom you have defied. So this this is awesome. <laughs> David spouts right back at him, which, you know, if you think about it, Goliath probably didn't have too many people talk back to him. <laughs> you know, he's this nearly 10 foot tall empowering soldier, you know, just a walking killer. And I bet when he said something, people didn't really bark back at him. But David sure did. David ultimately knew that this was a spiritual battle. And you may be thinking, well, (laughs) how do you get that assessment from what we just read? And the reason being is because David had already declared, like we talked about in the last episode, that he was going to kill Goliath. And he had already recognized that it wasn't going to be because of what he could bring to the table. It wasn't because he was all that. It was a fight that God would fight for him. And that was in chapter 17, verse 37. And he said, Moreover, David said, The Lord who delivered me from the paw of the lion and from the paw of the bear, he will deliver me from the hand of this Philistine. So David was operating in faith. And just to be clear, what is faith? Hebrews 11.1 says, Now faith is the substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen. So first off, faith is right now. It's current. It believes right now. And David definitely had right now faith. Faith is also described here as a substance. You know, it's it's tangible. It's the proof that you truly expect something to happen. Then this verse says hoped for. Okay, now when we hear the word hope, we tend to think of like, you know, someone making a wish, you know, I wish I was in Florida or I wish I had a gazillion dollars, you know, so on and so forth. Nowadays, we tend to relate the word hope to something that we don't even believe can happen. (laughs) We're just saying it in like a wishful way. But the Bible definition of the word hope means an earnest expectation. It's something you're truly anticipating happening. So faith is the proof of what you expect. And the whole reason why faith is necessary in the first place is because if we already tangibly have something in our possession, we can't really say that we're believing for it because we already have it. And if you already have something in your hand, then it wouldn't require faith. Meaning, you know, if you're already holding on to an apple, why would you be believing for your apple tree to produce an apple? You already have it in your possession. So David expected, he believed, he was anticipating that God would use him to kill Goliath and rescue the Israelite people because he knew that God had done it before with the lion and the bear. So he had faith and he knew that God would come through again. David wasn't focused on Goliath's sword or spear or javelin like verse 45 says. His focus was on how Goliath had defied God's people and David believed he had what was coming to him. So David continues on in verse 46 through 47. This day the Lord will deliver you into my hand, and I will strike you and take your head from you, 
And this day I will give the carcasses of the camp of the Philistines to the birds of the air and the wild beasts of the earth, that all the earth may know that there is a God in Israel. Then all this assembly shall know that the Lord does not save with sword and spear, for the battle is the Lord's, and he will give you into our hands. That's awesome. <laughs> we already know that Goliath is the ultimate trash talker. He's been mocking the Israelite army two times a day for the last 40 days. So, you know, 80 times. And David fires right back at him by saying, This day the Lord will deliver you into my hand. And if that wasn't enough, he tells him, I'm going to strike you down. And then I'm going to cut off your head. And then we'll kill all your buddies and let the birds eat them. You know, obviously that's paraphrased, but that's awesome. And the cool thing was, I didn't realize until just now, Part of what he just said was exactly what Goliath told him he was going to do to him. Goliath tried to tell him that he'd give his flesh to the birds of the air and the beasts of the field. And David was like, no, (laughs) no, I'm going to kill you and I'm going to chop off your head and all your buddies too will pay for your decision and their bodies will be eaten. And man, you know, we're kind of desensitized to this nowadays because we got all these movies and we can watch all these killing movies and all that war movies or, you know, Whatever. But, man, how gutsy is that to tell someone that you're going to kill him? You know, I've been seeing these little videos of former NBA players talking about other players that they played against. And one of them is when some of these players have played against Larry Bird and how Larry Bird used to talk trash to people. And Larry Bird would go to the point where he would tell them exactly what he was going to do. He'd tell them that he was going to get open and get the ball. And that he'd make this move or that move. He'd even tell him the amount of dribbles he was going to take. And then he'd tell him the spot on the floor where he was going to shoot it from. And he was going to make it. And the players still couldn't stop him. Okay? That's wild in itself, you know, if you're a sport follower. But to tell someone exactly how you were going to kill them. And not just talking trash to someone who's, you know, smaller than you and you have more skills than them someone who was clearly favored to kill you and then you follow through with it you know that that's that's pretty cold-blooded in a good way and really this this makes me think about how you know sometimes you know actually a lot of times we need to talk trash right back to the devil and his demons whenever he tries to mess with us i'll tell you what back when i first got turned on to the lord when i was single and living by myself man if my walls could talk (laughs) I don't know what they'd say. But when I got a revelation about this, I would verbally out loud, you know, not just in my head, but out loud, yell at the devil and tell him how dumb he was. How he was an idiot for thinking that the dirty thoughts and all the junk he was trying to bring back into my life would get me to go right back down that path. I started getting a revelation that I was a child of God, that I was an overcomer, that I was more than a conqueror. So I would tell him that. I'm like, you're dumb, devil. And I'd also tell him, you know, how stupid he was. And I know some of you might be kind of like having a tough time with this. But yes, you should absolutely remind the devil how dumb he is. Because, I mean, when you think about it, the devil was in the presence of God. And he made the choice to want what God had. You know, it wasn't that he hated God. He wanted to be like God. He wanted what God had. So if you're someone that's in the presence of God, and you make the wrong choice, and now you're thrown out of heaven, yeah, you're not very smart. So it's okay to remind the devil what his fate is. 
Remind him that he's going to spend eternity in the lake of fire and that he's already defeated when he tries to tell you these little things. You know what? And it's not always the devil. (laughs) You know, there's only one devil. He's not omnipresent like God. So his little demons or whatever he is that try and mess with us, yes, fight back and tell them that they're stupid. My wife and I even teach our kids that the devil is stupid. You know, if our kids go around and call each other a name, they call each other stupid or dumb, and we'll say, hey, no, we don't call our brother or sister that. Who's the only one we're allowed to call stupid? And they'll say, the devil. You know, they they know. I heard Joyce Myers talk about this a number of years ago, and she's got a great book out there called Battlefield of the Mind. She would say that when the enemy tries to attack your soulless realm, which is your mind, your will, and your intellect, one of the most important things you can do is to simply say, you know, shut up, devil. And what I'm getting at is that sometimes we give the devil too much credit. Yes, there is a time for rebuking and binding and everything like that. But sometimes the devil just wants to slow us down. And if he can get us spending all of our time focusing on him, you know, binding and rebuking and, you know, he's already defeated, you know, but all that stuff, again, there is a time for it. But if he can get us focused on him more than he is on God, sometimes he wins that little short battle. But again, the devil is already defeated. So rather than focusing on the darkness, focus on the light. So when the enemy tries to bombard your mind with, you know, what if this happens? Or you'll never be who God wants you to be. Or, you know, look at what you did. You know, how can you call yourself a Christian? Again, keep your focus on Jesus. Keep your focus on the light. And just tell the devil, you know, shut up and keep it moving. So again, just like David talked trash right back to his enemy, we need to do the same. And I love how he says in verse 47 that when everyone sees all this happen, just like I said, then they'll know that this wasn't because of my doing. They'll have no doubt it was the Lord that delivered you into our hands. Verse 48. So it was when the Philistine arose and came and drew near to meet David that David hurried and ran toward the army to meet the Philistine. So like we already read, Goliath had began moving towards David But when David saw that, he didn't just stop. This says that he hurried and ran towards the army to meet Goliath. Now, like we've already talked in the previous podcast, the armies were up on like hills or mountains. I don't remember exactly how the Bible described it. But where this all took place was down in a valley. So there was a a span of space in between them. It wasn't like they were, you know, 100 feet from each other. And how could they keep walking towards each other before they would get right up to each other? You know, there was there was some space. So that's why we saw David ran towards Goliath. He wasn't tiptoeing into this. He wasn't mumbling underneath his breath, you know, hey, hey, God, you know, just call him to make sure you're still there. I'm getting close, God. You know, he wasn't doing any of that. He knew God had saved him from the lion and the bear, and this wouldn't be any different. In David's mind... This wasn't even a fair fight because this uncircumcised Philistine didn't have a covenant with the creator of the universe like he did. Now, I don't want to just assume you're seeing the personal application with this, so I just want to try and you know give some examples here. But in this covenant that you and I are in, when we begin to realize who we are in Christ, the potential's there for us to look at the junk that comes our way and have this same type of mindset that David had. You know, like, this situation thinks it can come against me? Devil, that was dumb. Now I've just got a testimony when all this comes through. 
to help others out. And you can't mess with me because I'm in Christ. I'm more than a conqueror. I'm an overcomer. I'm blessed everywhere I go. Everything my hand touches is blessed. The Spirit of God is always with me and He doesn't leave me or forsake me. Even if the junk that's coming against me is because of the dumb decisions I've made, it makes no difference. I'm running after God now and He's going to turn it around for the good. And devil, that's because my God is always faithful. And no matter what happens, even if I die, I enter into eternity with God. So I can't lose. So ultimately, you know what? Just shut up, devil. So again, David ran right at Goliath. Now, I'm not seeing that it mentions any of this, but I can't help but think, you know, this may have intimidated Goliath a little bit. Now, it's very possible Goliath was consumed with pride, and he didn't even bat an eye at this, but even though he was a really confident soldier, (laughs) to have David tell him not only was he going to kill him, but that he was going to cut his head off, And then for him to run right at him, it wouldn't surprise me that this kind of shocked him a little bit, even if he didn't show it on the outside. Now, regardless of whether that's correct or not, and I'm not saying this like it's okay to just misinterpret the Bible, that's not it at all. I'm just saying it's okay to let your brain imagine what all this could have looked like. And to not just gloss over this and just, oh yeah, another Bible story. No, but to actually sit and kind of think and imagine what it actually looked like. That's why when people go to Israel and they see all these places that were described in the Bible, you know, that's why they say things like, oh, this, the Bible is coming alive. Well, the Bible is always alive. It was just they hadn't really thought in their imagination what it could look like. And then to see it in person, you know, where his hometown was, the places he might have visited and and all that, so on and so forth that's when the Bible comes alive to a lot of people. But what I'm just sharing is that you can experience that without even going to Israel. When we actually meditate on the Word and don't just breeze over it, but actually think and imagine what it was like, that's what helps the Word come alive to us. So all I'm saying is that because David was so confident in his God and he treated this nearly 10-foot-tall giant, you know, like he was just some little tiny ant, I'm simply suggesting it may have caught Goliath a tad bit off guard. That not only was this good-looking young guy talking back, but he was also running right at him. Verse 49. Then David put his hand in his bag and took out a stone, and he slung it and struck the Philistine in his forehead so that the stone sank into his forehead and he fell on his face to the earth. And what we can see here is that basically David got right down to business. And just like David, we shouldn't make any provision for the flesh to fulfill its lusts, like the Bible talks about. What I mean by that is, David wasn't playing around. He didn't allow Goliath to throw more insults his way so that he could, you know, potentially become intimidated by him. He didn't allow Goliath to get physically close enough to where he could have maybe swung and hit him with his sword or or punched him or anything like that. It doesn't say how close they actually were, but my point is, David didn't give Goliath the opportunity to get the upper hand. It says right away that David grabbed a stone and threw it with his sling and it drilled Goliath right in the forehead. Likewise, we have a choice with whether or not we allow temptation to creep in. There's a saying that goes, you can't keep the birds from flying around your head, but you can keep them from making a nest in your hair. 
okay? Every thought that comes your way isn't your fault. The devil's going to try and throw things at you. But you have a choice with whether or not you're going to run with it. With whether or not you simply say something like, shut up, devil, and just think about something else. Or if you have to be a little more intentional with not allowing that thought to continue in your head, you know, depending on the season of life that you're in. And I've been in both. I've been in the seasons of life where I could simply say, shut up, devil, and just change my thought. And I've been in the seasons of life where it was a battle. But just because a simple thought comes your way doesn't mean it's your fault. It's your choice what you do when that thought comes, whether you run with it or not. It makes me think of this DC Talk song. You know, when I was a kid, I, always, I was big into DC Talk. And I can't even remember what it is right now, what the lyric was exactly. But it basically just talked about how it wasn't the first look. It was the second look. You know, you're driving down the road and there's a half-naked girl on the billboard. Okay? Sometimes you can't help but see it. It wasn't that you were looking for it. You were just keeping your eyes on the road and you're looking around making sure that deer aren't coming. And there's a billboard and you look up and there's a half-naked woman. Okay? That's not your fault. You're not doing something wrong you don't have to repent for that but when your eyes go away it's your choice whether you go back and look back at it okay and that's just trying to give you an example of what i'm talking about so practically speaking if you struggle with pornography maybe you need to limit how often you scroll on social media platforms especially when the enemy knows if he can get you to look at something that's just a little bit inappropriate that it'll snowball and get you to do something else. And now on, that's a challenge because they've got all sorts of ads on social media that just pop up that are way past the point of being appropriate. So I'm not giving you law here. I'm not saying don't do this or do this. I'm just saying you need to guard your eyes and your ears with what comes in. Another example would be gossip. It's so easy to get pulled into conversations that aren't building up anybody. You know, and with politics and all that sort of thing, it's okay to discuss different viewpoints and that. Okay, it doesn't mean you can't participate. But to sit there and just bash people and and that sort of thing, you know, as believers, it shouldn't be so. Or with gossip, you know, did you hear what happened to you, so-and-so? You know, I just saw someone for the first time in a long time, and one of the first things this person said oh did you hear about so-and-so they're getting a divorce and it didn't catch me right away but as I thought about it later on I was thinking why in the world when I haven't seen you in forever was that the first thing that came out of your mouth some gossip about somebody else you know (laughs) I just don't get it and really we got to guard our hearts with even things like prayer because as Christians it's really easy to allow gossip even into our prayer life because We think, oh, I'm going to share this with so-and-so, and and we try to put it under the umbrella of prayer. But what we're doing is it's just camouflage gossip, okay? We're just spreading rumors about people. Oh, just pray for them. No, you're not concerned about that. You just want to spill the beans on what other people got going on. So we got to be careful with that. We got to guard our hearts. We got to be like David and be a man or woman after God's own heart. And I'm not saying we can't share things with people. That's not what I'm getting at. But gossip is definitely a temptation from the enemy. It's our choice whether we allow the garbage of the world to get our attention. And again, you can't always affect what comes your way, but you can affect whether you give it any time to try and make space in your brain. And again, the the list goes on and on, 
but it's just our choice with whether or not we give the enemy a chance to entice us or not. You can be like David and to allow the Holy Spirit to guide you into what you should or shouldn't be doing with your time. Another example may be, you know, struggling with like addiction. And addictions come in all shapes and sizes. You know, it could be drugs and alcohol or sex or even shopping or eating. You know, those are those all can be addictions. You can choose to not give the enemy a chance by simply staying away from the things that can lead you down a road that you don't want to be on. And again, we got started on this because David right away hurled a stone at Goliath and hit him right in the forehead. He didn't give Goliath the opportunity to get right up close and to give him a chance to get him. Use your Bible as a spiritual stone and chuck that thing right at the enemy. Verses 50 through 51. So David prevailed over the Philistine with a sling and a stone and struck the Philistine and killed him. But there was no sword in the hand of David. Therefore David ran and stood over the Philistine, took his sword and drew it out of his sheath and killed him and cut off his head with it. And when the Philistines saw that their champion was dead, they fled. Now that is awesome. (laughs) When David saw Goliath fall on his face, verse 51 says he ran and stood over him. And because he didn't enter the battle with a sword, he grabbed Goliath's sword and right away, without hesitation, chopped his head off. Now we can really learn from this. David didn't get comfortable and complacent when things were beginning to go his way. He knew knocking Goliath down wasn't all he needed to do. So he finished him. And I I know some of you, if you're my age, you're probably thinking of Mortal Kombat. But anyways, this makes me think back with what we talked about in part one of this series entitled Saul Disobeys. David was the opposite of Saul. When King Saul was supposed to destroy the Amalekites for what they did to the Israelite people following when they came out of Egypt, King Saul didn't do what he was supposed to do. There's a whole bunch of stuff he didn't do, but not only did he let his people keep the belongings of the Amalekites, which God said not to do, but he kept their king alive. Again, when God had told him to kill everyone. And on top of his disobedience, he lied to Samuel right to his face, saying, I did do what the Lord commanded me to do. But David, on the other hand, followed through all the way. It wasn't enough to just knock Goliath down with the blow to the head. He knew he needed to kill him. Likewise, we need to be faithful to the point of completing what God is asking of us. And I'd encourage you, just ask Holy Spirit, what things am I not following through on that you've asked me to do? And the cool thing is, we live in the age of grace on this side of the cross. So if there are areas in your life that you're not doing what God is asking of you, he doesn't pull away from you like he did King Saul here, okay? His spirit is literally inside you if you've trusted in Jesus. And if you pursue him and are willing to listen to that still small voice, he'll guide and direct you with what needs to change in your life. Now, something else that was significant when David chopped off Goliath's head and held it up is that it made things crystal clear of what all just happened to the soldiers that were standing afar off. You know, they they couldn't argue that, oh yeah, you know, Goliath just tripped. Or that, yeah, David hit him with the rock, but, you know, he's just knocked out right now. He'll get back up. David grabbing Goliath's own sword and chopping his head off allowed for zero confusion on either side. The Philistine champion was dead. And as a result, 
the Philistines began to flee. Next, in verses 52 through 53, it talks about how the Israelite army chased after the Philistines and that when they returned, they plundered all their tents and kept their belongings, which is what you did back then. You know, if you defeated an army, you got to keep their stuff as spoil. And in this situation, unlike back with King Saul, when he was supposed to destroy all the Amalekites, it was okay that they took the stuff. Verse 54 through 58. And David took the head of the Philistine and brought it to Jerusalem, but he put his armor in his tent. When Saul saw David going out against the Philistine, he said to Abner, the commander of the army, Abner, whose son is this youth? And Abner said, As your soul lives, O king, I do not know. So the king said, Inquire whose son this young man is. Then as David returned from the slaughter of the Philistine, Abner took him and brought him before Saul with the head of the Philistine in his hand. And Saul said to him, Whose son are you, young man? So David answered, I am the son of your servant Jesse the Bethlehemite. Now, verse 54 is one of my favorite verses in this whole story. David, when he chopped off Goliath's head and held it up for all to see, he didn't just throw it down and continue on with life. He toted it around. (laughs) And why not? You know, this just shows that David had some dog in him. Yeah, he was a young man, but he had some dog in him. An entire army was scared of Goliath, but because of his relationship and covenant he had with God, Goliath was nothing. So he toted this head around as a way of showcasing God's power. Now, if this were King Saul, with what we've seen from him so far, I believe he would have done everything he could have done to try and draw attention to himself rather than to God, because it was always about him. But that's why David was a man after God's own heart. He knew everything he had was because of God. Think back to what he said about his interaction with the lion and the bear. Again, in verse 37, The Lord, who delivered me from the paw of the lion and from the paw of the bear, he will, God will, deliver me from the hand of this Philistine. So not only did David carry around Goliath's head, verse 54 says that he put Goliath's armor in his tent. So what's that all about? What David was doing was he was keeping Goliath's armor as a reminder of God's faithfulness, of what God had done. You know, a dead man's head can only go so far. (laughs) You know, that sucker's going to rot and decay and stink and all that. Although if it wouldn't have done that, I bet David would have kept that too. Man, what (laughs) what a great conversation piece setting that on your coffee table. But instead, David kept... Goliath's giant armor as a reminder of God's faithfulness. And that's one of the reasons I promote something called a thankfulness journal. And no, men, I'm not talking about a diary. Okay, it's a journal. (laughs) And what you simply do is you just have a notebook with blank paper or a document on your computer, either way, and you just write down the things that you're thankful for that day or, or for that week. There really isn't a wrong or right way to do it. Now, when I first started doing it, I was writing down a lot of stuff because when I first started, I didn't have a lot of the extra things that it can be so easy to look at as being thankful for. You know, at the time I was single, I didn't have a car, I didn't have a license, I lived all by myself, you know, and and the list goes on and on. 
So for me, when I first started, it was like, I'm thankful that I got food in my fridge. I'm thankful that I have a job, even though I've got to walk, it's only three, four blocks away and I can get there every day. I'm thankful that I got a roof over my head. I'm thankful that I've still got family, even though they're still two hours away, I can call them. I'm thankful I got a phone to call them. I'm thankful that I have my health. I'm not sick and I can walk around and, you know, I was, you know, there's lots that I could be thankful for. But until I really sat down and did that, it would have been really easy to overlook that stuff. But as time went on, what I would do is I would even start putting down in there the small daily victories that were taking place in my life. And then over time, I would go back and I would look at them. Just like David here, he kept that armor so he could look at it and remember that God was with him. And I could go back in my little thankfulness journal. And again, you don't got to be as detailed as I was, but I would go back and I would look at, man, God was faithful here. And maybe at the time I didn't even see that God was with me, but he was just faithful. And that encouraged me when I got into tough situations. Because one of the biggest lies in the church world is that when you give your life to Christ, things will just be simple. They'll be easy. And that's the furthest thing from the truth. Especially when you start stepping out and you start doing things for God, what you're doing is you're putting a target on your back. But again, if you can stay eternally minded, it doesn't really matter. Because you're so excited to be doing things for God. And even if something, you know, let's just go right to the worst case scenario. Even if something happened where you were killed and you died, man, you get to go and be in the presence of God. We sing songs about when we all get to heaven, what a day of rejoicing that will be. And we don't realize that in order to get (laughs) into heaven, we've got to step out of this earthly body. (laughs) So unless Jesus comes back, we're all going to die. We're all going to (laughs) die. Anyways, but back to this thankfulness journal. It doesn't have to be very detailed, but it's just a way to remind yourself of God's faithfulness and how he's seen you through time and time again, because especially, and I know I've already kind of said this, but especially when we come into discouraging seasons, we can look back and it'll encourage us. And sometime after this series is done, I'm going to share some of my personal story. And what I did was to remember a lot of this, I went back and I read my thankfulness journal from shoot would have been 2013 and 2014. And I'm excited to share some of the things that God did for me during that time. So it doesn't matter how old you are or whether you're a man or a woman or even a child for all that's concerned. A thankfulness journal can really be a beneficial tool that'll help you. So David kept Goliath's armor as a reminder. Now these verses also tell us that King Saul started asking around who David was. But the funny thing is, this took place after David had already been around Saul. This was after he had already played his harp for him when the distressing spirit came upon him. Which tells me is that Saul didn't really value those around him all that much. Now I'm not saying there isn't a chance that Saul just didn't notice David when he played for him because, you know, think about it, he was distressed and was hurting and, you know, that's when David was there. But wouldn't you think that if he was a man after God's own heart, that the next day after he woke up and he was doing much better, 
Wouldn't you think that you'd want to thank the person that helped you? (laughs) Because I believe David played for him more than once. So if you really cared, if you were really thankful for what other people were doing for you, you as the king would find a way to get David to come to you so that you could thank him to his face. And again, we're not just reading these stories just to read over them. We're reading them to provide personal application and learn from their mistakes as well as their successes. And King Saul's demonstration of self-centeredness makes me think of several different scenarios that I've heard of. And to help provide personal application, I'm going to talk about something that we all have done. You know, and that's just going out to eat where we go to a sit-down restaurant. I've heard stories of how born-again believers, mind you, go out and they treat the waiters like they're beneath them, speaking down to them, like because they're a waiter or a waitress, that it's their job, you know, to wait on them of every beck and call they need and, you know, do this and do that and and aren't grateful and aren't thankful and, and don't give them grace. That's just a scenario of thinking more highly of ourselves than we ought to think. Born-again believers who send back the food when really there's nothing truly wrong with it. It's just not made to their exact specifications. Now, I'm not talking about a situation where like you're allergic to cheese and they put cheese on it. I'm not telling you you should still eat it. Or like a scenario where, yeah, something is just, they just keep messing up. You know, because sometimes it is helpful for the manager to know that these things are going on. But even those situations where you got to do that, you can do it with kindness, okay? We don't have to act like a spoiled little brat and make a bigger deal out of things than they are. Because what we should be doing, yes, we're going there to eat and we're going there to enjoy time out with our family. And yes, there's a level of professionalism that we should be able to expect by the workers at the establishment where we're going. But if we would actually look at that individual as a person (laughs) and not just a means to get what you want, look at them as the young mom or the older lady who's trying to pay the bills or the young man who's back there cooking your food rather than seeing them as just do what I want and if you don't do it exactly right, I'm going to send it back and I'm going to complain about everything that happens. You know, that's just not the way to be, especially as believers. And if you're a waiter or a waitress or a cook, I'm not talking down to you, okay? (laughs) That's not it at all. Praise God that you guys do that job and you do it with excellence. Because the truth is, you can do that job unto the Lord and not to men. All I'm saying that is, as believers, we shouldn't be so focused on us. We should be grateful and thankful for those that are helping to serve us. And again, if that's you, if you've done those things, What I want to say is, first, I'm not mad at you. God's not mad at you. But if you're that fussy and that's a struggle for you, maybe for a season, don't go out to eat. (laughs) Stay home and cook your own food if it's a challenge to be thankful for what others are doing for you. And if you're someone who complains about the lighting or the temperature and, and, you know, not just to the people that you come to the restaurant with, but if you're actually complaining to the manager and to the waiters and stuff like that, because things aren't exactly how you want them, I would suggest that maybe you don't go out to a restaurant for a while. (laughs) Stay home. But practically speaking, you know, if you're someone that's cold all the time and you go to a restaurant, 
maybe we can use a little wisdom and dress appropriately or keep a sweatshirt out in your car so that if it is too cold, you can simply go out and put a sweatshirt on rather than giving the waitress a hard time about the temperature and trying to get them to turn it up or turn it down so that it's what you want. You know, this mindset of forget everyone else, you know, me, me, me. That's just like King Saul. And back to the story on this topic of being thankful, how King Saul didn't show any sort of appreciation for David playing the harp for him. When we go out to eat, can I encourage you to show the waiter that you appreciate them by the way that you tip them? (laughs) As believers, we should tip them like we have an understanding that God is our provider. I know the general rule of thumb is to leave a you know, 10% tip. And I'm not fussing with anyone. But, you know, just let me speak for me. I just don't believe it's good for me to leave less than a 20% tip. And if you think I'm saying that to try and make myself sound special, you know, you obviously don't know me because that's, that's just not the point. Because I know there are plenty of you out there who have the gift of giving and probably see leaving a 20% tip as being kind of like a cheapskate. And maybe that's true, but you know what? You know, I'm growing, you know, and if you give a 10% tip, you know, you're growing in this too. And if you think, well, I can't leave a 20% tip because I don't know how to do the math. Well, first off, you got your phone. It's got a calculator on it, but you don't even need a calculator. Okay. Calculate 10% of the bill in your head. So if it was a $50 meal, 10% of that is $5, then just double it. So now it's 10 bucks and that's 20%. And again, I'm just speaking of a personal conviction I have. But for me, if I can't afford to pay someone a 20% tip on top of the cost of the meal, then for me, I really shouldn't be going out to eat in the first place. And I know some of you are probably thinking, well, what if the service is absolutely terrible? Well, you're a born-again believer. Tip them more. (laughs) And go ahead and stack the plates and put the silverware on there and leave all the cups kind of pushed together so they don't have to go around and have so many plates and cups all over the place that it takes them twice as long as if you just took a couple seconds just to pull everything together. Do what you can to make their job easier. Be appreciative of those who serve you and allow that kind of selfless act to show them the love of Christ. (laughs) And then when you leave, if it is a situation where the service wasn't very good and you do some of these things, you leave them a decent tip and you kind of get all the plates put together and all that stuff. You know, don't religiously walk past them and say something like, ooh, God loves you. Because, you know, again, this is Jasonology, but I believe a large portion of the time in a sort of situation I just described, we can be saying that with the wrong heart. What I mean is, we can say something in reference to God to them, but in almost like an arrogant way. Like in our minds, we're thinking, You know, I put up with your terrible service because I'm a Christian. So I'm politely telling you, God loves you so that I look good and I can quote unquote feel good. But in my heart, I don't really care about you. Okay, don't do that. Now, am I saying you can't do something to encourage someone like, you know, tell your waiter God loves them? You know, am I saying you can't do that? No. Okay, am I saying that when you write your tip out on your receipt, that you can't write a little encouraging message on there? You know, no, I'm not saying you can't do that. I'm simply saying let's make sure that we keep our head and our heart right and show appreciation 
rather than treating someone like a second-class citizen simply because they're not refilling our water as much as we think we should have. (laughs) Be led by the Spirit of God and just do what He lays on your heart and make sure you're doing it with the right heart. Again, learn from Saul's mistakes. He didn't appreciate David while he was serving him, playing the harp. So we should appreciate those who are serving us, even if they're working and receiving a paycheck. Last, we see David returning from killing Goliath, and he's got the giant's head in his hand. And King Saul goes over and asks him who he was. And what's great about this is that instead of replying with arrogance, saying something like, I'm the one that's been playing the harp for you, dummy. (laughs) Oh, and by the way, Samuel, the one who won't come around you anymore, yeah, he already anointed me to be the next king. I bet you'll remember me now, won't you? (laughs) Oh, and by the way, give me what you promised the man who would kill Goliath, the riches, your daughter, and no more taxes for my father's house. I want it right now. Come on, fork it up. No, David didn't do anything like that because he's a man after God's own heart. He simply replied with humility and respect, I'm the son of your servant Jesse, the Bethlehemite. And again, this story is written for us to have hope. You and I actually live in a better covenant than when David did. I'm not going to look it up, but David actually referred to the time that you and I are living in. He said how blessed we would be. And why is that? Well, because not only can God be with us, he is in us and he can be upon us. So we have more of an advantage than even David had. And it's not an accident that you and I are alive right now in the last couple seconds of the fourth quarter before Jesus parts the clouds. Because Jesus has a plan and a purpose for your life. And first he desires to get to know you, to build relationship with you. And from that, out of an abundant heart, we can make the choice to be used by God. So if you've been listening to this and you'd like to make Jesus the Lord of your life, I want to give you that opportunity. It's not complicated, and that was by design. Romans 10.9 says that if you confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus and believe in your heart that God has raised him from the dead, you will be saved. So what does that mean? Well, let me ask you this. Do you believe that Jesus is the Christ? Do you believe that he truly was crucified and that he rose from the dead? And if so, let's simply speak it with our mouth. Repeat this after me. God, I thank you for your son Jesus. I believe he is the Christ. That he was raised from the dead. I make you the Lord of my life. Thank you for saving me. I receive it in Jesus' name. Amen. And if you said that simple prayer and believed it in your heart, you are what the Bible refers to as born again. You are brand new. The old has passed away and God's spirit is inside of you right now. And as we speak, there's a party in heaven celebrating your decision that you just made. And I would encourage you to tell someone about that decision. Share it with someone so they can celebrate with you. Thanks for listening, and join us again next time on the Abundance Podcast.